welcome to our evening worship service. Would you please stand with me for our call to worship? Our call to worship is from Revelation 3, verses 19 through 22. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father, thank you for calling us into your presence this night. Would you minister to us and feed us and encourage us, challenge us, and may we give you the glory Do your name, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our hymnals to number 101, and we will sing, Come Thou Almighty King. be seated. Our Old Testament reading comes from Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read Proverbs 3 verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. My son, do not fear for teaching, but let your heart, heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor 
and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And this ends the reading of God's word. If you would take your bulletin in hand, you'll find in our order of worship a corporate confession of sin. We'll use these words uh, to respond to God's word by confessing our sins aloud together to God. After that, we'll have a few moments of silence where we can confess our sins individually and silently, and also just have a few moments to pray about whatever might be on your heart this night. So let us pray together. Gracious God, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that despite your discipline and instruction, we are often unwilling to change. We plead your forgiveness on the merits of Jesus Christ. Accept his worthiness for our unworthiness, his sinlessness for our transgressions, his fullness for our emptiness, his glory for our shame, his righteousness for our dead works, his death for our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Father, we thank you tonight for allowing us this beautiful privilege of worshiping you on the Lord's Day, both morning and evening. Uh, we're here to worship you and to open ourselves up to your working in our hearts and in our lives. And so even as we confess our sins, we pray that you would give us a sense of your forgiveness and acceptance that you would give us a sense of what Christ has done for us as we trade our unworthiness for his worthiness, our sin for his forgiveness. Lord, would you help us during this season as we approach Easter to have a true sense of our need for repentance and our need for change and our need for striving after you and striving after holiness. Christ fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
And so we ask that you would give us grace to discipline ourselves in obedience to your spirit. And as you know our weakness, might you show us your power to save. Have mercy on us, sinners. For those here and in our congregation tonight with physical ailments, we pray your care and healing for them. For those with spiritual ailments, we pray your care and healing for them. And for all of us, we pray for your continued good providence and mercy to be upon us. For we ask these things in His name. Amen. Our assurance of pardon tonight comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, where he writes, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you've confessed your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, his wounds have healed your sins. You are forgiven. Receive his forgiveness tonight. Now as we receive the evening offering, uh, we will also sing hymn number 528. So if you'd open up with me in your, your hymnals, 528, My Faith Looks Up to Thee.
Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 12. And we will read verses 1 through 11 of Hebrews 12. Before I read it, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. It is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Would you make it bright for us this night? Send your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And this ends the reading of God's word. So we're continuing our evening series talking about spiritual slumps. um, How they happen, how to deal with them. And the series has been based on Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Uh, last week, we talked about facing, generally facing trials. Trials, difficulties uh, can cause us spiritually to feel down, to feel like God is far off from us. And so they cause spiritual slumps. We're going to build on that idea this week by talking about dealing with with God's discipline. Paul uses two metaphors for God's discipline in this passage. Athletics and education. So number one, athletics, starting in verse one, he says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the metaphor is that of a race. We are in a stadium filled with people, in this case filled with the saints, those who've gone on before us and who have showed us what the Christian life looks like. And then we're called to run as Jesus stands at the finish line uh, awaiting us to arrive there. And while we're running, 
the Hebrews tells us that there's going to be temptation to grow weary and to grow faint-hearted. Faint-hearted literally means exhausted in spirit. So he's saying, just like a runner can get exhausted in a race, you're going to be tempted, especially when you experience God's discipline. You're going to be tempted towards spiritual exhaustion. There are times when you're going to go through trials and get tired on the inside. That's one cause of spiritual slumps. The next metaphor he uses is that of education. So in verse 5, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So that repeated word, discipline, in Greek, it's paideia. It's, it's a fairly famous Greek word, as far as famous Greek words go, I guess. But that word was used to summarize education in the ancient world, in the Greek system. Webster defines it like this. Paideia is training of the physical and mental faculties in such a way as to produce a broad, enlightened, mature outlook, harmoniously combined with maximum cultural development. So it's tied with the idea of education. God's discipline in this passage is the Christian's education. So Hebrews 12 says, don't regard God's discipline lightly. Pay attention to what God is doing in his discipline. He is educating you. So what does that discipline look like? Well, it can involve providential circumstances. It can involve physical ailments, emotional problems, just any kind of difficulty we face in life where we have a sense that God is chastising us, where he's trying to teach us something. That's what discipline is. Martin Luther famously tied God's discipline with our physical suffering. Uh, and he based this particularly on Psalm 119. There's a couple verses in Psalm 119. They're hard verses, but nonetheless. Verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Through his affliction... He learned obedience. Also Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. When I took Hebrew in seminary, we had t-shirts made uh, that just said Hebrew on the front of it, had the semester, and on the back, it had a verse in Hebrew. And our teacher decided to put Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And, uh, of course, he was referring to the fact that us having to take that class was a form of affliction through which we were trying to learn God's statutes. But that applies to every struggle that we go through. Martin Luther commenting on those verses says, I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. I have practiced this method myself. In Psalm 119, you will find three rules. They are frequently proposed throughout the psalm and run thus. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and suffering. The, this is God's school. Prayer, meditation, and suffering. Suffering is the furnace through which God purifies us and teaches us to become the vessels that he wants us to be. One of the most striking things about suffering that I've seen in all the scriptures is that Hebrews says Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Even Jesus, the perfect man, 
had to learn obedience to God through suffering. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. So those metaphors of running a race, physical exercise, and also education are showing us that God disciplines his people and that discipline can be really challenging to endure, just as challenging as getting an education or as running a marathon. So that's my introduction. In light of that, I want to spend the rest of our time going through some principles that we can learn about God's discipline from this passage. Just really practical, helpful things, hopefully. So here's the first one. God's discipline is meant to make us focus on Christ. So let's go back to our passage. What does he say in verse 1? Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Key phrase, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And again, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That word, the phrase, consider him, in Greek, it's, it's stronger. It's analyze him. It's pay close attention to Jesus. When I'm facing a trial or trouble or discipline, I tend to focus on the trial or on the trouble. I want to analyze the trial or the trouble and figure out how do I get myself out of this. Whereas our passage is saying, instead of just analyzing your problems and your troubles, you're meant to turn your attention toward Christ. That's why God is allowing this to happen, so that you can turn your attention to Jesus, because you can analyze your, your problems till the cows come home. And at the end of the day, the ultimate only solution to our greatest problem is Christ himself. It's not something I can figure out. It's something that's been revealed to me in the gospel. I can watch Jesus enduring the cross to find strength to endure whatever cross God might be calling me to bear. So God's discipline is meant to make us focus not on ourselves or our problems, but on Jesus. Here's the second thing. God disciplines us not as his enemies, but as his children. So in verse 5, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. He's quoting the passage we read in Proverbs earlier, which Solomon was writing to his literal sons. But the important thing here is that when we go through God's discipline, we are going to be tempted to think it feels like God has disowned us. But this text is saying the exact opposite. The fact that you have a sense that God is disciplining you is proof that you are his child. You're not his dog. You're not his enemy. You're not an object of his loathing. You are his child through adoption, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You are probably most prone to feel like you are a child of God on a nice, warm, sunny cloudless day when everything's going well all of your kids and grandkids are healthy and you're singing that old baptist hymn there's sunshine in my soul today 
I remember the first time I ever sang that hymn, and I thought, who on earth wrote this? Because I don't think I've ever had one day like this in my life. But regardless, this passage is telling us you should always feel like a child of God, especially when you're experiencing God's discipline. Because in his discipline, he's addressing you as son. Today, hear my voice. It's a different mentality. You know, you can... I'm going to use a couple parenting analogies here because you can't avoid it because he's addressing us as his children. I can't spank your child, but you can spank your child. I can't spank your child. Therefore, if God is spanking you, you must be his child. Therefore, when you are going through tough times, discipline, you should actually be saying, this is further proof that I'm a child of God. This is not proof that I'm not a child of God. This is actually proof that I am a child of God. And so you say, thank God, I am his child, and he is choosing to be an active father who is involved in correcting me. So that's the second principle. Here's the third. So not only is he disappointing us as his children, God's discipline is not wrath, but love. So again, verse 6 in our passage The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God's discipline is an exercise in love. When we go through difficult circumstances, at least personally speaking, I am tempted to think this must must mean God is angry at me. Sometimes to the point you're tempted to think God must hate me for allowing me to go through the things that I'm going to. But this is why it's so important to fix our eyes upon Christ. That's how the passage starts. Because once you get that settled, once your eyes are on Jesus, and you see what he endured for you, you begin to realize God's wrath is not meant for you because Jesus took the wrath of God in your place. He was your substitute. Jesus took the wrath that our sin deserves. God does not pour his wrath out on Jesus so that he can then pour it out on us. For the believer, the wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus. There is none left for us. I read someone, I can't even remember who wrote it, but they said, imagine Noah's Ark as a type of Christ. Once you get inside the Ark, not a drop of water can touch you. And he says, once you get inside the Ark that is Jesus Christ, not a drop of wrath can touch you. Therefore, God's discipline is not wrath. Rather, it is done out of love. So let me use the analogy of a parent again. Those of you who have children know what it's like to discipline a child. It is never advisable for a parent to discipline a child out of wrath. You know what that looks like. That's when you're taking, you're not disciplining your child so much as you're taking your frustration and anger out on your child. That's not discipline. That's punishment. That's what makes a child resent a parent. Real discipline is done for correction, not for punishment. It's done to teach, not to harm. This is how God disciplines. Use another analogy, this one out of a parent. This time I want you to think about a dog. Think about training a dog, disciplining a dog. Let's say you put up an electric fence to set boundaries and barriers, which the dog is not meant to cross. If it bumps into that fence, it's going to get a little zap. It's going to 
make, it's going to make some kind of noise, it's going to run away from the fence, and eventually it's going to learn. I don't touch the fence. That's discipline. You're putting a structure in place for discipline. But imagine if the dog makes you angry one day, and you pick it up, and you just throw it against the electric fence. That's wrath. That's not discipline. That's punishment. That's you're taking your anger out on the dog. Uh, now, that's not how God does it. He disciplines. He does not exercise wrath against his people. I cannot stress how important this is to get this distinction in mind. I cannot stress how much it's meant for me in my own life. God disciplines us because he pities us. It is a form of mercy and love because he is molding us and making us into something greater than we currently are. It is not because he hates us. It's, it's not because, oh, you don't, how dare you not live up to my perfect holy standard? Like, that's the whole reason Jesus died, because we didn't live up to that. It's that he has a plan for us, and he's conforming us to the image of Jesus who learned obedience through what he suffers. God knows what it takes to teach us and correct us. He is not an angry parent who wants to beat us with a wire hanger. He is a perfect father who lovingly corrects us when we go astray. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When you are so weak that you cannot do much more than cry, you coin diamonds with both your eyes. The sweetest prayers God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but his love. So God's discipline is that of a parent for a child. It's done in love, not in wrath. Here's the next principle. God's discipline is not meant to make us weaker, but to make us stronger. Verse 1 of our passage, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. God's discipline is not meant to make you grow weary or faint-hearted. It's meant to make you stronger so that you can endure. When you face trouble, the temptation is to grow weak, but God wants to make you strong. When you exercise, it can be painful. And by the time you're done, you may feel very weak. But the whole point of experiencing that exhaustion and weakness is so that the next time you can go to the gym, you will have more endurance. The weakness is actually making you stronger. That's true for your body. It's also true for your soul. Verse 9 of our passage, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? He calls God the Father of Spirits. There's a lot of language that's been used, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to interpret exactly what that means, but at a minimum, I think it means that he is the Father who breathes life into our souls. He's the Father who builds up our spirits by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he wants to build us up with inner life, with, with energy, with strength, with enduring power. He wants to exercise our souls. So the worst thing that we can do when we're facing trials is just shut down spiritually. Verse 9 says, be subject to the one who breathes life into souls. Now why do I say that, talk about shutting down 
in the process of discipline rather than being subject to God. Because I know myself, and whenever I face a hardship or I feel like something's not right between God and me, my tendency is to want to sleep more. It is want to want to watch more YouTube videos. It is to want to play more video games. It is to want to just run away from it and forget that it's all happening and hoping that the storm will pass and then life will resume as normal. But our passage is telling us, don't let God's discipline cause you to shut down or close yourself off to what God is doing in your life. You have to stay open to it. You can't just shut down and hope it will get better. This is where long-term spiritual energy comes from, to staying open to God's disciplinary processes. Now, here's one more thing about strength. So one, God wants to actually energize us through discipline. He doesn't want to zap our strength. He wants to build up our strength. Here's the second thing under this heading. He wants to teach us endurance. You are stronger than you think you are. You are stronger than you look like you are. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones said he was walking down the street one day, and he saw a, a mother and her small, rambunctious child coming out of the house and walking toward the car. And the child was twirling and prancing and running and, you know, to and fro as children like to do. And the mom was just getting ready to go to work. So she was just somberly, seriously, slowly, ploddingly walking to the car. And Lloyd-Jones said he had the thought, which of the two of them is stronger, the mother or the child? The one that's slowly, ploddingly walking or the one that's prancing around and frolicking. And, and Lloyd-Jones said, you know the answer to that. The mother's actually stronger. How do you know? Well, put a 40-pound dumbbell on the ground and ask them to pick it up and see which one has an easier, easier time with it. We know that the mother is stronger. Let them go for a 10-mile walk and see which one ends up piggybacking the other on their back. It's going to be the mother. She's actually stronger. Even though she doesn't look like it, she's stronger. And I, w I want to say to you, you're stronger than you think you are, and you're stronger than you look like you are. Now, Jesus Christ is spiritually the strongest man who ever lived. But when he went through his temptation in the wilderness, it says at the end of it, he needed angels to come and minister to him because he was so spiritually poured out during this process. That's in Matthew 4, 11. The fact that you need to be built up doesn't mean that you're weak. It means that you're human. You have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in you who ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism, who appeared at his baptism, who ministered through the miracles and ministry of Christ. That same Spirit is yours, and yet you think you're weak. That's why I love the hymn line that says, Think what Spirit dwells within me. What a Father's smile is thine. What a Savior died to win thee. Child of heaven, should thou repine? Think what spirit dwells within thee. When you are going through trials and discipline and you feel spiritually weary and weak, remember, you're stronger than you think you are. You have God's spirit on the inside of you. God is working on the inside of you. Stay open to that work. He wants to make you stronger and stronger, not weaker and weaker. And at the end of the day, if you fall... There's Jesus Christ standing at the finish line, waiting to catch you. One more principle. So his discipline is meant to make us stronger, not weaker. Next, 
God's discipline is not meant to overwhelm us. It's meant to teach us to overcome evil. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Remember that phrase, but later. It's a good phrase, but later. Later is the time when discipline yields the fruit of righteousness. I'm going through this now, but later this is going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Later is when you get your diploma because you made it through school. You go to class and you go to class and you endure the hardships, but later you graduate. Later is when you win the game because you practiced even when you didn't feel like it. Day after day, you practice, you endure the agony because you know, but later, you're actually going to win the game. The sin and evil that you experience in this life is temporary. It's transient. There's always a but later. But in the meantime, evil comes into your... I remember hearing somebody say this, and I just thought, why have I never said it that way? Evil is in your life for the purpose of being overcome if you are a Christian. So if you ask yourself, fill in the blank, whatever it is that feels like the chastisement of God, ask yourself, why is it happening? Here's a simple answer. Because by the Spirit, through Christ, God wants you to overcome it. Christ bore the cross so that you could bear this cross. That's why he says, take my yoke upon you. That's, he's in, we're never yoked by ourselves. We're always yoked to Christ. His help is always with us. You are not in this alone. Christ is with you, and because he's with you, you're going to overcome. Ultimately, we know that. because like, We have Romans 8. We have so many passages that say nothing's going to be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're going to overcome. We are more than conquerors, Paul says. And so you have to take that hope, that but later... And start applying it now. And say that but later could be tomorrow. That but later could be five minutes from now. Whatever this evil is that's in my life, God can overcome it. And he can work in me so that I can overcome it. Now, Jordan Peterson says, it's one of my favorite quotes of his, there is no catastrophe-free path. When we go through this life, we weigh our options, we try to make good choices, and we say, oh, there's job A and there's job B. And we say, well, I'll choose the one that looks like less of a catastrophe. And Peterson says, no, there is no catastrophe-free path. No matter what choice you make, you are going to face hardships. You are going to face trouble. You're going to face discipline because you're going to sin. And you're going to struggle. But in the meantime, as we navigate the catastrophes of life... Like, Hebrews 12 is encouraging us, saying, God is not trying to destroy you. He's trying to make you stronger. He's trying to build you up. He's trying to give you endurance. He's trying to teach you to overcome evil. In the book of Revelation, I still, Revelation is still an enigma to me in, any ways, but one thing, in many ways, but one thing that's very clear to me about that book is that it has a central theme. And that theme is, it is telling us just to keep going. Just to endure. 
to bear up under hardship, believing that we get the happy ending that Christ has promised. So a few examples of this. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's in exile when he wrote that. He's in exile. Not the best situation in the world, but he says, I'm your partner in patient endurance. He experienced it. We experience it. Revelation 2.2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. 219, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. 310, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. 1310, if anyone is taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain without the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And that same phrase is echoed in Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. So much of the Christian life is just keep going. Don't quit. Don't shut yourself off to God. Remember that phrase, but later. Now may stink. But later is going to be glorious. God's promised us. Keep those eyes on Jesus. Remember what he endured. And remember what happened after what he endured. He rose from the dead. And that's the pattern of our life. It's going to be death and resurrection. So you keep going, believing in that resurrection. 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That means if you've been born of God, you are going to overcome the world. Well, what does that look like? Here's what he says. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Simply by believing, just, you just keep believing in spite of all the difficulties, the doubts, the trials, the turmoil, the tribulation. If you just keep believing, John says, you're overcoming the world. Faith is overcoming the world. You know, we forget. I was trying to say this somewhat this morning. It's, we forget just how much of a miracle it is that we're here. And we're confessing our faith together. That we're confessing and repenting of sins together and professing our faith in Christ. It's, it's a miracle. This is what overcomes the world. So let me summarize. and We'll close. When we experience God's discipline, it can cause us to go through spiritual slumps because we are inclined to shut ourselves off from God, to kind of close ourselves down spiritually. And so we need to remember that God's discipline is meant to point us to Jesus more so than ourselves. That God disciplines us not as his enemies, but as his children. That his discipline is done in love, not in wrath. That his discipline is meant to make us stronger, not weaker. And that his discipline is meant to teach us how to overcome evil through faith. So if you're going through a spiritual slump... It may be that you're under the discipline of God. Don't shut yourself off to it. And hear these words from Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. Let us pray. Father, it's, I know in my own life, uh, one of the most frequent temptations I have faced is any time anything goes even slightly wrong. It's that temptation to think that you're against me and not for me. You get a flat tire and you say, clearly, what have I done? God, God hates me. You know, just not to mention the big things that happen in life that really make us question. And so we need this word. We need this exhortation addressing us as sons, saying don't regard the discipline of the Lord lightly, but remember that he addresses you as his own children. We need to be reminded over and over and over that you poured your wrath out on Christ and there is none left for us if we believe in Christ. We need to be reminded that when you discipline us, it's out of love and it's for our good, not because you want to take your anger out upon us, but because you want to build us up into these glorious creatures that you've destined us to become. Glorious creatures who are going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and be spiritually whole. Not only forgiven of our sins, but our sins actually being removed from us as we stand before Christ in glorified bodies with glorified souls that finally image and reflect him in the way that we were meant to from the creation. Forgive us for doubting your love. Forgive us for doubting your ability and willingness to forgive our sins. Help us to receive that full assurance tonight, and if any of us are under discipline this evening, I pray that this night would be a turning point, that that but later for them could even be this evening. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 576. Awake my soul, stretch every nerve. Let's stand as we sing 576.
Now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.